Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? It's not often we meet a living legend or someone who achieves their life vision when there have been unimaginable forces against them. My guest today is Gregory McComer, and in the world of dance and on the international stage, Gregory McComer is one of the most important artists of his generation. He not only survived the oppression and institutionalized racism in apartheid South Africa, but he broke cultural and gender expectations, even within his own family, to pursue a life in the arts. Not only is his performance and choreography exceptional, but he has become a cultural landmark in his own right, and his legacy is currently being celebrated in his 50th year. Gregory has taken back African history and the black body from colonial ownership. He honours the classical dance of his African ancestors in contemporary collaborations. Amongst numerous highly prestigious awards in South Africa and America, France also awarded him the Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres. You could think of this as a knighthood for his outstanding contribution to arts and culture. He's a leader in dance and social justice, elevating the possibilities and contradictions in life. He's a visionary who could see beyond the burning tires the burning houses and burning flesh in apartheid South Africa. And despite the human injustice he saw growing up, Gregory was and is the joy dancer. As part of his legacy celebrations this year, two books have been published. The joy dancer introduces children to Gregory as a young boy living in Soweto, a segregated township, discovering the magic of dance. His memoir, My Life, My Dance, My Soul, sees that young boy become a giant of courage, conviction and compassion. Hello, Gregory, and thank you so much for joining me at such a special and hugely busy time in your life. It's an honour to speak to you today. Thank you, Paula, and it's my honour to be here with you. Oh, bless you. Um, that is more than generous, but thank you so much. Well, Gregory, I wondered if we could first talk about um, one of your uh, current stage shows, Broken Chord, which one review described as a collaborative masterpiece of extraordinary power. I wondered if you could tell us about this work and why you chose it for your legacy year. <laughs> Um, Broken Chord is, is a work I'm collaborating with uh, composer and director Tutuga Sibisi, who I met when I was, I met him when we were working on The Head and the Load on William Kentridge's production. 
And it happened that I walked into a museum in the south of Johannesburg, the Apartheid Museum. And there was this exhibition about the first South African choir to tour the UK in 1891 and subsequently to to the US between 1891 and 1893. And I found it fascinating, um, the concept of a choir, of an African choir, leaving the shores of, of Africa, of South Africa, to go to a country that was colonizing um, our country. And I just wondered in terms of how were they received and how were they perceived. And the idea of the black body being in the center of all of this, that raised my curiosity. And I was raising that curiosity, giving the now, um, the ideas of migration, the ideas of the other, the gaps that still exist uh, within cultures, within traditions, within countries. And that really interested me in, in wanting to create a work that was speaking back to the pushback from the West and how that conversation can continue to happen through movement and dance and, uh, and so on. Yes, and I understand that the African choir were also travelling in order to raise money for a school back home and yet arrived into hostility um, and overt racism. And I think, as you say, there's acute relevance today. We see migrants resorting to unsafe boats, for example, to flee terrible circumstances. Is Broken Cord a title and symbol of displacement? Is it about the loss of belonging? It is, it is that. It is also, you know, because um, a lot has been broken, the cord in itself. While it's a vocal cord in itself that has been broken because we've just been screaming and saying these things over and over and over, and it's, it's beginning to sound like a broken record, in a sense. So it's a series of broken um, um, conversations that have been taking place, but it seems like no one is hearing um, this, you know, and we continue to amplify these messages. And, and, and it seems like more and more there is um, a need to return to humanity because there's so many atrocities that continue to happen um, that are against humanity. Uh, you look at what's going on now in Gaza between, um, uh, um, um, you know, the, the, the attack on Palestine, um, the attack on just the on, on just the human values, what we stand for as humanity. There's been a, a recoverable rupture um, that allows us or asks us to really question who we are in the context of living in this world and how we navigate. Um, each other's um, ideas of, of survival. Uh, for others, surviving is literally about um, surviving a bomb. For others, it's about surviving, um, you know, a yeah, a moment in, in, in life which is always kind of like pushes you to the edge in a sense. So yeah, that, that broken cord is a, it's a it's, it's, it's a broken series of conversations. 
Yeah, it's really fascinating work. And of course, as you just mentioned, raising um, the question as to who we are in terms of being able to explore our own identities and our own histories, that leads me to your work, Exit Exist, um, and perhaps you could share the context on your own family history and your exploration of your ancestor, Chief Makoma, as part of understanding your identity? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, Exit Exist is one of the very important works that um, not only taps into the history of my own family, but also questions um, identities, also qu questions identities, but also questions the, um, what is it that is left for us to, to fight for, given also like our own situation in South Africa post-apartheid that we have not seen a real democracy taking shape and taking form uh, because we've got more and more people who are living under extreme uh, poverty conditions, and and this is getting it's go it's getting more and more worse. So I'm questioning again, you know, the idea of land of cattle, which is what this work is bringing into the light. Um, you know, there, there's a question that 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 is at the end of the piece where it says, you know, where 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 are the cattle? And uh, where will when will they return? Uh, because you know, Makoma, as Chief Makoma understood that the cattle and land were the currency of the time, but also the pride of the people, and which is something that he fought for um, against the British um, invasion in the in the Western Cape, in the Eastern Cape, and where he was arrested and then taken to, to Western Cape where he eventually died uh, in Robin Island where he was in prison. Yeah, it's, it's such stark and difficult history. I've read that um, Chief Makoma was considered without question to be one of the most renowned chiefs in South Africa. And what you seem to share, of course, is a spirit, a warrior spirit for justice. You share that legacy. So in your 50th year, you're acknowledging his own legacy, his passing 150 years ago. Sure. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, 150 years ago, and I'm, and I'm standing 50 years. And also in a year that um, part of the land in the in the Eastern Cape has been renamed Guamacom um, after him. So there's a sense of him being one um, recognized for his effort in our own country. But you know, there's always you no know, at, at what cost. And an exit exists, you know, marks and proposes a similar response to apartheid and the legacy of the colonial project in South Africa through a highly effective performance that draws the story of a cultural legend. So, so my performance in itself uh, calls back the ghosts that haunt the contemporary manifestation of our own country in dance. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, to actualize the past, to dance the past in order for us to understand the, the dissipation of our own history 
um, but rather to persist through the dance, to the cultural forms, to the idea of um, there are those who walked the path before us who have fought the very same struggles. Um, and, and it just emphasizes that, you know, humans are such stubborn beings. <laughs> we never hear. We, we continue to come back into the same things that um, have got us to where we are. Yeah, it's very true. And it's endlessly shocking, isn't it, that human beings can choose such cruelty and such self-attack. And actually, when you were uh, talking about uh, Chief Makoma and, of course, the fact that he was imprisoned on Robin Island, again, there is shared legacy there with the fact that Nelson Mandela, of course, was imprisoned on Robin Island for 18 years. And I, I wondered, in terms of your own experience, uh, witnessing the emancipation of Nelson Mandela and seeing him sworn in as president, would you have been around 20, 21 years of age at that time? Sure. I mean, I would have been, um, I think I was around 16, 17 years old um, when when the conversation about him being released was formulating. And when he was eventually released, I was around 20 years old. So, um, you know, we've been looking forward to the release of Nelson Mandela. It's almost like, you know, there's been a, a promise. Um, I, I speak of the nirvana in terms of the politics of our own country. Um, if, if that transition from apartheid to democracy, it felt like you are, we were being transit or transiting into a space that was um, too good to be true because there were so many promises that were made to, to the people. But uh, we've become worse off. Um, as much as the jubilation and the appreciation of him being released was a resounding, you know, collect, collective effort of so many people, including those who are in the diaspora. Um, but the results of that, you look back 28 years, or in fact, almost 30 years now, um, since the release of Nelson Mandela, is... There's, there's, a, there's a question, how did we get to where we are? How come we didn't use that legacy, his legacy, what we have fought for um, to, to the benefit of the poor of the poorest in this country? Yeah, absolutely. So would you say that your work is effectively about speaking truth to legacy and speaking truth to history? Sure. I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm constantly challenging the systematic, the violent erasure of like, South African's history because, you know, we continue to live in this, in this veil um, that tries to omit the truth. Um, and, and mine is to, is, is, is to create that history or to recreate that history because I believe very strongly that we cannot erase history but only, only remember um, or reinvent it in some way or the other. So that violent erasure um, it somehow uh, persuades me to find ways in which I could 
fragment, disorientate, but also at the same time to find solace and clarity in terms of my standing point with the development of our own um, um, democratic dispensation in our own country. Yeah, absolutely. And and I found it really interesting um, when I read that you had actually achieved a scholarship in 1992 that took you to Spain. So, of course, this is just prior to Nelson Mandela being sworn in. Yes. Yeah. And so I wondered if you could share uh, with the listeners more on that experience. And I'll quote you. I remember my first time out of the country as an out-of-body experience. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, that was in, in, in 1992. We went to Spain for the World Expo. And it was also the time when this convers- the negotiations were happening. It was, the, the apartheid government had already announced its intention to release Nelson and to, um, to, to somehow start to have a conversation around what the future holds for South Africa. And they needed to look the part, to play the part, but also to, to look to the world that they were serious about those conversations. So the selection of Black South Africans to go and represent the country in the World Expo was precisely for that reason. It was precisely to say to the world, hey, we have been serious about this. We've been serious about change. We've been serious about um, inclusion in, 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 our, in our future of leadership for our own country. Um, so it was literally, I mean, I, 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 and these are the things I look back and I think about them um, and, and think, yeah, we, we, we were used as scapegoats for the apartheid government for them to, to somehow you know, buy time, for instance, or for them to make the world think that South Africa was actually a, a rainbow nation, which was not. Yeah, so it was, it was a superficial PR exercise. Um, and yet, um, moving into dance, of course, was started by a cultural activist. I wondered if you could tell us about the significance um, of meeting Sylvia, Sylvia Glasser, and, and, and how, how acceptance into that scholarship really changed your life. Sure. Um, I mean, Sylvia won, you know, she, she, she did things that were not popular. And because um, she started moving into dance in 1978 at the height of apartheid. And she used to take students from the townships of Soweto and then get her to her house to rehearse in her own garage, which was not allowed. I mean, she, she, risked, she, she was risking with her life. Um, and it was not popular you know, for a, a, a white Jewish woman to go into the township and find um, a, a, a black South African dancers to be trained in, in, in contemporary dance. And when I was accepted at the school in 1990, that changed my life completely because it was also the first time I walked into a rehearsal room or an audition room 
um, a studio of which both black and white students, young people were fighting for the same thing. It was the very first time I was in that kind of a situation because um, the root of apartheid was always uh, divide and conquer. So it was always, you know, separate as much as you can. Separate for, uh, uh, people by the color of their skin, but also separate them by their language. So there was segregation that we were enforced into. So to be in that same space with so many people who were coming for the same reason, that was for me, um, yeah, a, 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 a moment that um, was a changing life moment. Yeah, absolutely. And courage is just stamped all the way through you, through your life, through through people you meet. Like like as you said, Sylvia was taking huge risks herself. And by no means is it easy to be courageous. And perhaps, you know, it, it goes back again to your own ancestry, you know, Chief Macoma always having the courage to stand up for what's right. So, dis- so despite, despite the context in 1992 of that, that superficial PR exercise um, that was taking place, um, as you were saying, pretending to be a rainbow society, you nevertheless did go to Spain and I wondered how huge was that impact in terms of creative curiosity, encountering a freedom perhaps around the arts. And also how strange was it, Gregory, to sort of be in a society where freedom was normal and experiencing a temporary freedom when you were expected to return to a cruel political ideology? Hmm. Sure. Um, it's a loaded <laughs> statement and the question. But, um, I, I mean, you know, we, we knew apartheid ex- it was in, in full force, even when the time when I was in Spain at that time. Um, because, you know, I lived with parents who were at, a, at, a more, at that time where and both of them were unemployed because uh, of the, the pressure that was put by, you know, one, the, the, the black South Africans who were fighting against apartheid, but also in the international world who, uh, you know, posed a lot of uh, sanctions for, for a lot of companies. So a lot of people went out of employment because many companies were closed and my parents were part of it. So I knew that the, 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 the results of apartheid were really much in the DNA of people. It was already, they were living with it. So the moment of going to Spain was somehow a moment of saying, what is it that is possible? How can South Africa be like? Because we were, again, you know, um, exposed to not only this, the, 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 the Spain culture, but this, but also the entire entire global world, because the expo was exposing other countries in terms of their 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 outlook in terms of their vision in, in the next coming 
you know, 20 years and more. So to see that happen, to see that possibility, made me to fight for and to be part or to want to be part of the changing um, landscape of my country, um, culturally. So, so if anything, it has helped me to to see the possibility of what it could be and what the country holds for the future. And I wanted to be part of that change. I wanted to be part of um, the conversation moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And if we wind back perhaps to when you were first exposed to dance, perhaps you could share with the listeners how you first encountered dance as a child and how dance really unlocked who you who you are today uh, I lived quite close to a hostel uh, which housed um, many um, South Africans who were coming from different parts of South Africa and they over the weekend they were do compete amongst themselves with traditional forms and that was my first kind of you know, um, link to tradition in a sense, in terms of dance, because it was the first time again I was exposed to traditional forms that were different and people competing amongst themselves. At first, I was taken by the euphoria of the movement. You know, I was I was surprised by just the sheer beauty of it, and just seeing all these men sweating and. And, and, and being acrobatic in terms of their movement and dance. And then at home, I was exposed, we had a small television screen and Michael Jackson appeared um, and he could do just small movements and that moved people to tears. And I thought, wow, that's very powerful in terms of you know, being able to just stand there and be able to do that. But also at the same time, Michael Jackson was the first black person I was seeing on television screen that was what was portrayed in a positive manner. So that made an, gave me an impact on that. Okay, if that man can do that and impact people in that way, what more can I do if I can also take from the traditional forms that the migrant workers were doing and fuse it with what I was seeing from the pop culture. And without knowing, I was already creating an aesthetic and a form, which I call a cocktail, uh, which takes you on a roller coaster of emotions. Um, and it's a cocktail that fuses different genres of movement, fuses different histories, and allows us to go onto a roller coaster of emotions. So, yeah, that was the beginning of my dance. And then until I saw a, an advert that um, uh, Moving to Dance had put on a newspaper that my father was reading, uh, which was calling for people to be trained in dance um, and, and to come and audition. Uh, and prior to that, I've, I've never been in a professional studio. Literally myself and my friend, Vincent Mansi, who's also an amazing choreographer and dancer who lives now in France, um, together we, will, we, we formed a group called the Joy Dancers. And there were five of us in the Joy Dancers, and we will rehearse in our own backyard. We put on music and then we'll, we'll, we'll put steps together. You know, what we were seeing from Michael Jackson, what we were picking up from the migrant workers. And that became the choreography of our time. 
Um, and when we went to, to, to join Moving Into Dance, myself and Vincent, we were then exposed to the terminology of all of this. Yeah, astounding, astounding steps to become who you are and, and the phenomenal achievements that, that, that you, have, you have succeeded in. And yet, again, when you go back to that, that first opportunity of being able to apply for the scholarship, I read from your memoir, and I'll quote you, my ever-supportive mother understood what this opportunity meant to me we made a pact to keep it secret from my father. So again, even here, there's more courage involved, isn't there? Um, you're negotiating risks, even at home, perhaps, because how would you describe that cultural conflict, which you no doubt understand um, with your father um, in terms of what his fears were, perhaps, the idea of his son entering the arts. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my father already wanted me to be a, 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 a medical doctor by profession and and then a soccer player as a hobby. So he, he understood. I mean, he always spoke about education being the key to my own success. It's the only thing that he saw would be um, would change my life completely and turn things around also for the family. So he had put education first. He really wanted to give me that. Um, he, there, is, there wasn't much he could give me um, in terms of, you know, what I will inherit after his lifetime. So he knew that education was going to change my life. So he wanted that desperately for me. So I could understand his protection, um, protective nature towards me having to focus on school. Um, and then my mother became also, you know, a, an ally in a sense, you know, because she had to, one, you know, respect the rule of the family, which, you know, my father was, is the household. He, he makes the rules. Uh, my mother needed to firstly also obey by those rules, but at the same time, have a mother's instinct of, 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 of allowing the child to be a child. And, and that's what she did. She, she allowed me to, to, to dream and to follow on to those dreams. Um, and hence the risks that we had to take together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and interestingly, despite, if you like, um, a conflict around cultural values at that time with your father, his passing had a very significant impact. And you referred um, to the fact that you had become the strong heir my father wanted me to be in your memoir. And I wondered if you could share with us how, how this focused you on your ancestry and the importance of legacy. Sure. Uh, it's a it's a it's a multi-layered. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's quite multi-layered because you know on one on one hand you've got the culture and the tradition that one has to follow, and on the other hand it's also surviving through that culture and tradition. And um, my 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 father, um, because he was such a 
a controlling figure within the family. Somehow he he knew that as the firstborn child in his in his family, I'm gonna be the one who's going to take over the responsibilities, his responsibilities. So part of his teaching was about um, the importance of family. Hence, I, I continue to adore my family, my mother, my, my siblings. Um, and, and that is something that he was very clear about, that we've got to put family first um, over everything. And um, obviously, that has helped me in shaping and having empathy and sympathy for others as well. Hence, my work always speaks for the other. It always um, raises questions for the other. In, in, in our attempt to create um, a voice for those who are marginalized, a voice for, for those who might be voiceless. Um, and I think there's power in there's, there's power in, in, in the fact that he created um, that as a, as a passing of his legacy to me, to say, have empathy towards others. Yeah, and that clearly is a message throughout all of your work, that whilst you speak truth to history and truth to legacy, you're also an educator in terms of the importance of justice, human rights and compassion. And I wondered how much impact your mother or grandmother or other women in your life also had, because of course, the women in your life were also struggling with gender oppression. So there's another deep layer of oppression. And I wondered what the dynamics were like with the women in your life. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be here. Um, that I, I know for sure. If it wasn't for my mother, if it wasn't for my grandmother, if it wasn't for my mother's sisters, who um, all became uh, parents, they all became mothers, and we call each one of them mother, because um, they understood that um, it, a child is raised by a village, and every elder in our society, particularly women, are the ones who are raising children, are the ones who are ensuring that um, um, the future is secured for, for our younger generation. So my, my the mothers played a huge role in, in, in my life, in shaping who I am today, in shaping the leader that I am, in ensuring that uh, I care for, for the children as much as I, I care for the adults. But children have always been in the center point as well. So hence the children's book, um, The Joy Dancer, which is allowing every child to see their dream true, that also their dreams, no matter how big or small it is, it's also valid. And it's those women who always validated their dream. I mean, my mother will set up a stage for me during um, family gatherings and I will be the entertainer in the family. So that was honing that skill already of performance uh, without her realizing but because she knew that um, I needed to live that dream of wanting to be a performer, to be a dancer. And she made it real at a very, at a time when it was unimaginable. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a giant in her own right. And it's so significant. This this season publishes on World Children's Day and that example you just described of your mum enabling you to dance, how beautiful setting up a stage for you and effectively allowing you to express your creative vision, your explore your own curiosity. What's your what's your message? Is it essentially around hope? and the entitlement to be able to dream for children everywhere in the world, be it war-torn countries, be it, you know, be it poverty-stricken cities, for example. What's your ultimate message that you'd love to see expressed to children everywhere? So I think there's two messages that are, are, are always expressed, particularly when it comes to children. And, and this, this, this applies anywhere in the world, is that firstly, children have to be children and be allowed to experience and to experiment with, with, with the arts, whether dance, music, whatever form of art, uh, because that's the only way we are going to create and unlock their creative um, uh, potential. And that's how we create geniuses of the world by allowing people to be creative. And then secondly is that we've got to allow children to be dreamers. Um, as in many cases, we want to we want our children to live our own dreams when we tend to oppress and suppress their own dreams. And, and that for me is always dangerous because um, it's basically asking our the children to live our dreams than them living their own dreams. Yes, and those values are also reflected in your work for seasons, are in terms of you're really emphasizing the danger of the harm we do to our own minds. How would you describe Four Seasons in terms of raising awareness about our own destruction to each other, to our own minds, to the world we live in? Yeah, to our own planet as well. You know, so um, sure. I mean, there's always that 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 you know um, dangerous or thin line of not knowing when we're creating damage. You know, sometimes we, we leave because um, society allows us to. Um, we live by the norms and values of what society has created. And we forget that we also have our own uh, minds and, um, and we've got to make decisions based on um, what we know to be a, a driving force for for survival of societies beyond our time. And I think it's the, it's the thin line. How do I create a better world for those who are coming after me? Um, because it is the only way we can save our own planet. It is the only way we can create a safer, a much more richer, a much more uh, tolerant um, 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 a world of which we can live together side by side with our own differences. Yeah, and, and would you say that the arts 
or dance in particular is vital to rescuing the mind, to rescuing our minds or the collective mind in order to achieve understanding and tolerance and harmony? Absolutely. I mean, it has done that for me. You know, it's how I dealt with my own trauma of being raised as a teenager in the township of Soweto, where I was surrounded by dust, um, where I was always um, surrounded by smoke that was emanating from our from the chimneys in the houses, but smoke also emanating from the burning um, houses, uh, cars, but also flesh, human flesh. So it's it's that trauma, it's dance that allowed to channel that trauma into something more positive, um, turning all those disadvantages to advantage. Yes, absolutely. And at the same time, it's so incredibly hard to survive trauma. And of course, through your work, you're telling stories of trauma and you're expressing you're expressing trauma. Um, so your dance is channeling trauma, in other words. How how do you take care of that? How do you cultivate your resilience and your courage in order to deliver the purpose of your work? Mm. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge collaborator. Yeah, I always look for people who have similar or even different uh, ideologies because it is through collaboration that we are able to serve each other. But we also are able to rescue each other because you know it's no longer um, um, my only responsibility, but I share that responsibility with many other people that I bring into my space. And I'm very intentional with collaboration. Um, I'm, I'm very clear in my mind that when I collaborate, I collaborate um, for the benefit for, of everyone who's in the room with me. Um, but also we extend that benefit to the audience, people who are coming to witness the work, um, that they too, they feel that um, they've been taken care of in that process. Yes, and you've spoken a lot about the importance of curiosity through your collaboration. You have a high value on curiosity, and you've said that you choose people out of your own curiosity. I wondered if you could talk about how curiosity serves you, and perhaps in terms of openness and what we were saying before about the health of your own mind. Mm, um, sure. I mean, I think, you know, curiosity, they say, you know, <laughs> has killed the cat, but it hasn't. For me, curiosity has expanded my knowledge of the arts. Um, it has helped me to tap into areas and spaces that I would not have gone to if I wasn't curious enough to, to unlock those doors, um, you know, to collaborate with artists who are not in dance, um, to work ambitiously with with other people like for instance my when I collaborated with Idris Elba and Kwame Kwe Amar on, on the production tree, that was an, an ambitious kind of um, a collaboration. But uh, because I was curious enough to know more about 
the stories of other people and the feelings that people carry with them, it's that curiosity that unlocked that pot- that uh, possibility for me to be in the same space with Idris Elba, to be in the same space with um, um, Grammy Award-winning artists like Volta Kellerman, um, to be in the same space with um, so many and, 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 um, um, very successful artists. Um, and it's not just about their popularity, it's also about their own humanity. Um, and I'm, I'm drawn to that. My curiosity is drawn to people who, who care about the world they live in, who care about others. Yeah, absolutely. It's a vital quality that sadly is either diminished. I mean, even in the UK, um, the arts are significantly ripped out of schools, um, even in higher education. Um, The cutbacks are particularly steep around the arts. And that seems to be such a serious disservice to how we can cultivate curiosity, how we can embrace, as you say, the humanity in each other. And of course, coming from such a stark history in terms of growing up in an apartheid system, would you say apartheid was effectively destroying curiosity? It was part of the reign of fear in order to oppress people. I mean... Apartheid was a crime to humanity. And when you commit such a crime, you eradicate even the dreams of people. So it is erasing um, completely the ambitions, meaning also erasing the curiosity for people to see uh, beyond just themselves, beyond just the environment they live in. So, um, and it, Somehow it continues to live in so many of um, the legacies of apartheid, which are being played out in our political space because you see it happen over and over again. That curiosity has been erased and has allowed people to be greedy, has allowed people to um, to only think for themselves and 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 to place you know, the, the, the goodness of, of, of the intention or the intended goodness of, 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 of our democracy into a wasted time of, um, of politicians who are only there to serve themselves, meaning that the legacy of apartheid has really destroyed even their own thinking, their own curiosity of of seeing a better South Africa. Yes, and with your insights and your vision, your understanding of these qualities, would you say all of this informed how you wanted to set up and start the Viani Dance Theatre? Because, of course, you'd been working in Europe for some time, but you returned to South Africa to start the Viani Dance Theatre. And, and perhaps even then, you were breaking barriers that still existed. And this would have been perhaps 10 years ago? Was it 2014 when you 
when you started the theatre? No, it was in, in 1999 when I started. Oh, okay, earlier. Theater. So it's much yeah. earlier on. Um, also at a very critical time, because we were just heading uh, towards our 10 years of democracy in our country. Um, and and I had questions, you know, I was, because, I mean, the creation of Really Dance Theatre, first and foremost, was to create a space for artists to find something that was far more significant about themselves, but also as a playground for people to be creative and to tell their stories, to tell their own stories in the way that they wish to. Um, in many instances in South African landscape and how companies have been set up is that um, most of these companies have been set up by, you know, like moving to Dan, it's a, it's a white Jewish woman who found it to herself that it was important for her to, to, to create a company like that. But the work and the aesthetic was then formulated in order to serve her own ambitions as well, you know, uh, as a creative, which is completely acceptable. Um, and I wanted to create a company that was not fitting into any stereotypical um, way of making work. Um, so, 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 so the formation of Wayne Dance Theatre was precisely to allow um, so many of us to 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 bring our own stories into a space that was going to to cultivate, that was going to um, collaborate and allow those stories to find resonance to to the world, resonance to us as a community, but also to the world. Yes, and obviously, um, you know, you've achieved success after success, um, by no means um, easy, um, but nevertheless, you really have broken through against so many barriers. And a lovely connection in relation to Vianney Dance Theatre is also in this season. I had the pleasure to interview Musa Mota and, of course, your Musa's mentor. And he referred to you, of course, in, in our interview. Um, and for the listeners uh, or international listeners who may not know, Musa Mota recently broke television history here in the UK with an outstanding performance on Britain's Got Talent. And what was key when I spoke to Musa Gregory was how he said you never treated him as different because of his disability, because of the amputation on his leg that he'd undergone as a young child, and that you really did open doors to him in terms of what was possible. Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I think Musa is, is, is such a great example in terms of if you set your mind into something, um, we can only, you know, support and 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 give direction and and yeah, and it's, it's the case with Musa. He, he came to us um, as as Vienna Dance Theatre. He came in for an audition with other people, and and I've made it very clear to everyone in the room, um, including my company. I said there will be no favors. There will be no. Um, Ahashem, you know, he's, he's on a one day. He needs to fight for his space like everyone else. Um, and if he's deserving to be 
taken in into our training program, then he will be, you know. So and and that's exactly what happened. He auditioned and he qualified uh, because he was hungry for it. Um, when we audition people, it's not only about the talent; it's also about um, you know the the hunger that the person has in order for them to to undergo the the intense training that we we give our you know our people. So it's yeah he had to fight for for his space like everyone else. You know we always the company is always on on the edge because they know that there's no time to to rest. Um, there's 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 always time to improve. There's always time to work towards uh, the betterment of of yourself, of your brain, of your mind, of your of your physicality. Yes, and you took such a disability positive approach. And would you say that that was natural, instinctive? Because of course, you want to remove barriers and discrimination. And so you were embracing difference. You were embracing possibility. Absolutely. And I think we do that, you know, in, in all spheres of 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 our making, you know, the craft itself, dance is somehow, you know, it can be seen as an elitist, you know, um, art form, um, because there's always this particular, you know, people must look a particular way in order for them to, to be seen or recognized as a dancer. And you see the making of our company is different forms, different shapes, different, you know, um, bodies. Um, and and because we're not focusing on how the person looks like, but we're focusing on the pure talent the person possesses. And if you're talented enough and you're hungry enough, then yeah, there is a very great chance that uh, will accept you in the company. And also Musa said he sees himself as a messenger of hope and you have said I'll quote you, my intention is to create hope. And that was another beautiful connection and something you've been influential in. Is hope is hope a faith? Do you share a faith in your vision for the future and for positive change? I communicate hope through spirituality. Um you know, it's 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 something that is not tangible, but is felt. Um, and if I can allow the work to move people to a place where they feel hope, then I've achieved something. And I think that's that's how I create the work is to allow people to feel that there is hope, that they can feel they walk out of a theater um, being um, being hopeful. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the hour has absolutely flown by. And so I should probably move to the series question. And based on perhaps that idea of hope, how do you respond to the series question, can art save us? Yes, art can save us. Um, Art is the ultimate tool to 
deal with our own trauma, to allow us to think differently, to create, to allow us to be empathetic towards one another. We've seen this during um, the COVID. It was the art that really saved lives. Yes, absolutely. And I think perhaps we can also say um, the courage to be curious, which perhaps the arts helps us cultivate best. And your courageousness, Gregory, is absolutely astonishing. It's astounding the barriers that you have managed to survive and wade through and change. And I really hope that more and more people will discover both of your books, especially The Joy Dancer, um, to inspire children about what's possible. And listeners, these um, books and Gregory's website will be signposted on his episode page. So please discover more, be a supporter, be inspired and share his message of hope. Gregory, I can't thank you enough for making so much time for me today in such an incredibly busy year. And I wish you every happiness as, as part of your legacy celebrations. Thank you very much, Paula. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate this. And Merry Christmas to you and your listeners. Oh, bless you. You too. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you.